Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, we are so thrilled with our guests this week. Some have made comparisons between Berkshire Hathaway and his firm and himself and Mr. Buffett, so you're in for a treat. Tom Gaynor, the CEO of Markle Group, is joining us. Shortly after university in 1986, Tom got his start at Markle, a holding company with operations in insurance services and industrial operations as an analyst. Tom's talent, however, was quickly recognized by Markle's founder, Steve Markle, and Tom has climbed the ladder before becoming co-CEO in 2016 and then CEO in 2023. In addition to being the CEO at Markle, Tom is a director for the Coca-Cola company. Juan and Andrew Williams sat down with Tom in this episode to cover the strengths and weaknesses of co-management, how culture and narrative impact decision-making, applied probabilistic thinking from a master decision-maker himself, the 25-year locked-in student fund, and the dollar cost average versus going passive when it comes to capital allocation. Enjoy. Tom Gaynor, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much. Tom, where do we find you today? Uh, Fortunately, today I'm in Richmond, Virginia. So home sweet home. Tom, I don't think that there are many people in the investment community that don't know who you are. But for those that don't know who you are and have never heard of Markel, can you please provide us with a brief summary about yourself and the company? Well, certainly. So Markel is an insurance-based holding company been public since 1986. The company actually started back in 1930. There were three generations of family leaders that uh, ran Markel uh, and built the insurance business from 1930 up until a decade or so ago. I started at Markel myself in 1990 to help out with the investment side of the operations and the investment side grew and morphed into Markel Ventures, which is where we became a holding company to own several non-insurance industrial and service businesses. And we started out in uh, 1986 with a market capitalization of a little over $30 million. And today it approaches $20 billion. Uh, We do business all over the world. Uh, We insure creative and interesting things that tend to not have a home in the standard insurance markets. And we build a variety of products and services that uh, do things as as, as wild as uh, bake bre- bread and rolls that you would find at a fast food restaurant or grocery store shelf. We're the largest grower of indoor houseplants in the world. We provide IT consulting services, concierge medical services, precast concrete, and 
so on and so on and so on. So it's a it's a long story, but I hope that gives you just a, a brief snippet of, of what Markel is certainly uh, does and is willing perhaps to do. Tom, Markel is known for, and you just briefly mentioned that, ensuring things that are uncommon. What is the most uncommon thing that you have insured in your 30-year career? Well, uh, it's 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 a long list, and there's a there's a hundred different product lines and areas and, and things that we would tend to insure. Some of the the stories that get told is if you uh, remember the movie The Wizard of Oz, and Judy Garland in that movie, she had the ruby red slippers, and there were apparently six pairs of those that were used as parts of filming, and, and one of those pairs was uh, held by a collector at some point in time, and we were the insurer of those ruby red slippers and they were uh lost so that was a, a claim <laughs> that we paid on a on a product that if uh if you were looking to find insurance for ruby red slippers that were collector's items because they'd been in the wizard of oz uh that would i i've never tried to google search that i don't know what you would come <laughs> up with but uh markel would be the answer of somebody who's willing to do something like that that's really interesting that's fantastic. It's an eclectic mix of of, uh, of industries and things you insure as well. It's really, really, really interesting. Thank you, Tom. I just want to kick off actually talking about a subject that's really, really close to our heart here on the Valley team at Schroders, and that's co-management. So our investment team at Schroders has, has co-heads. All of our portfolios are co-managed. Now, I know that you managed Markle's investment portfolio alone, I think I'm right in saying, for around 17 years. You were also the co-CEO of Markle Corporation for six years before becoming the sole CEO at the very beginning of this year. So it strikes me there's probably not a better person to talk to about the pros and cons of, uh, of co-management. So just start, start with that. You know, what do you believe are the ingredients for success of co-management and, and what are the drawbacks? Well, even people who are uh, CEOs, um, as I am at this point, uh, just to just the CEO in a, in a sole role, uh, what you're doing is you're, you're running a team. And there's no CEO, there's no quarterback, there's no coach, there's no point guard, there's no center of any functioning team that doesn't have teammates around them. And, and the best teams have uh, heads of those teams who have recruited the, the people around them with some care. Uh, and, and part of that care is not just the skill that those people have, but the willingness to listen to them and involve them in your own thought process and make sure that you're taking advantage of all of the intellectual capital that you surround yourself with on the field of play. Um, so I think the number one formula for a co-structure to work, whether it's formally identified as a co-structure or whether just as a matter of practical reality is, is the way the world works, is respect for the people that are on your team and listening to them and, and taking their advice and counsel and different points of view and experience into place as you make decisions. Now, that said, one of the things that might be something of an advantage to the sole CEO type structure or the head coach or the starting quarterback or the point guard is there are oftentimes decisions which need to be made instantaneously. So you should have done your homework. You should have every bit of background information you possibly can have. But sometimes everybody on the team is going to look at somebody and say, what do we do? And for somebody to say, this is what we're going to do and to choose the path, even if that's not a perfect decision, 
sometimes that's what's called for in the in the moment. So pluses and minuses to both structures. And do you think it's interesting to hear you um, talk about that because you can make you can make quicker decisions certainly if you're the the sole CEO, but you still have that team as well. And it sounds like actually what you're saying is there isn't a huge difference between the mindset of being a co-CEO versus being a CEO. Is that is that fair? Yes, I think that's correct. Because I think the important thing is there, there's a label that seems rather binary. You're either the sole CEO or you're a co-CEO. And the reality is that if, if you're the sole CEO, you would be foolish not to have co-opted and have a, a, a circumstance of cooperation with the people that you've surrounded yourself with to take full advantage of the wisdom that they bring to the table. So it's it's not as um, much the end of the spectrum as the, as the labels might imply. Sure, thank you. Um, Tom, how does a business culture and narrative impact decision-making, especially over a 33-year period? Well, I think that's really the secret sauce of Markel, is the, is the culture that's here. So back in 1986, when, as a matter of fact, we might have had technically the label of one CEO, but as a practical matters, it was like uh, ancient Rome, where there was a, a, a tribunal or tri triad, the three Uh, co-consuls uh, in, in the form of Alan Kirshner, uh, Steve Markell, and Tony Markell, who effectively were the three CEOs of the business. And as part of the IPO process and going public, they explicitly wrote down our creedal statement, which they called the Markell style. And in that uh, effort, what they were really trying to do is recognize there would be a time when none of the three of them would be here but they wanted Markel to still be here and the company to still carry on. So they wrote down a series of guidelines, principles, cultural values, the, the creed, if you will, of Markel, such that for those that came after those three, like Richie and, and now myself, uh, we, would, we would understand the culture and the values of Markel. And frankly, that informs every single decision and action we make from the top to the bottom of the company. And I don't think there's anybody of the 20-some thousand people who work for Markel who don't have some exposure and some awareness and some understanding of what the Markel style is all about and, and the values and the um, way in which we do things and, and hold ourselves accountable for. And, for, you know, fortunately, someone in my position and someone who's been here 33 years, those, those roots are deep. Uh, for someone who just started this morning, it might not be quite as deep There's no way it could be, but over time, uh, those lines should converge. Tom, you've said in the past that financial statements are a donut truth, that it's the truth, but but not the whole truth. And this is about understanding what might be visible within the financial statements when you look at them and what's not. And I've heard you refer to this as the whole story or the, the, the narrative. Now, that's really interesting to us because... We know narratives are really compelling. Human beings, this is the way we communicate through storytelling and narrative. But that can, they can also be quite dangerous. Um, you know, on the podcast, uh, a few, quite a few episodes ago now, actually, we had Bethany McLean who uncovered the Enron scandal. That was obviously a very, mm -hmm. the darker side of narratives, if you like. So, you know, 
I feel like there is this friction between the numbers and the narrative. Um, and do, would you agree with that? And how do you deal with that when looking at companies? Well, uh, to start with your premise uh, uh, and the word used, a friction between the numbers and the narrative, there is some element of truth to that, but there doesn't have to be. So, for instance, that that I, I think many in the investment business, especially within the last five or ten years, uh, we've become quite skeptical of the narrative, and for good reason, because anytime you see something fall apart, and you just referred to Bethany McLean and, and Enron, there, there was a narrative which convinced people that something was true, which in point of fact, it wasn't. And the numbers perhaps did suggest that eventually, but the numbers, uh, at least for a while, probably were in concert with the narrative enough that people got fooled. Mm. So it, the, the narrative in and of itself is neither good nor bad. We have adopted the practice to try to have some detachment and non-emotional uh, reaction to what somebody's narrative is, but because we've seen and all been scarred, perhaps, by examples of where somebody was pretty good at telling a narrative, but the numbers weren't backing it up. I think uh, it is also often true that there's a pretty good narrative, and the numbers do indeed back it up over the fullness of time, in which case... The narrative is not a bad thing at all, and to the extent it allows people to understand and and, and see things and get the picture a, a little bit more than just looking at the numbers, well, it's fine. So it's a tool not for good nor evil. It, it's just a tool, and it can be used either way. And in those cases where the the numbers do back up the narrative, what exactly, in your experience, is it that tends to be missing from the numbers? What do you need? What do you find out? from finding out that whole truth? Well, let me talk specifically about Markel as, as an example. So I've written about in our annual report for the last several years, and my colleagues groan when whenever I start a sentence around here that that begins with, you know, I used to be an accountant and, <laughs> and whatever comes out of that and is where I'm sort of pointing out what I believe to be some of the current flaws of gap accounting. Yeah. So in the realm of gap accounting, you, you're, you're trying to describe economic reality, but remove yourself from accounting presentation and the numbers, there's a there's a statement which preceded this conversation and probably preceded my lifetime. The map is not the territory. So the territory is, the map is a representation of it. And a good map would give you a good sensation of the territory. But no matter how good the map is, it never will fully describe the reality of the territory. And I think that's sort of what we're talking about here. The numbers which describe a business are essentially maps. The business itself, the human beings that are running it, uh, their uh, relationships that they have amongst the workforce with their clients, the the sense of marketing uh, mindshare that they have in their in their customers' mentality. All of those things are rather difficult to quantify immediately, but the numbers probably show the direction in which things are traveling over time. So uh, I, th I just think it's very important to recognize that there are maps out there, there are territories out there. The, if you were doing a Venn diagram, there's overlap between those two things, but they are not the same things. They're different words and they're different words for a real reason in that they're they're different things. 
That's a cracking analogy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I think that we are going to be stealing that analogy going forward, but <laughs> we will give you the the sourcing rights. Uh, I appreciate that. Well, the, the the old joke about that sort of thing is when you when you quote somebody, the the first time you you quote them and you give them full credit, <laughs> yeah. and then the second time you just sort of say, you know, it's it said that, yeah. uh, and then the third time you just say it yourself. So I appreciate you at least quoting me for the first time. <laughs> we will do our best efforts, Tom. The inception of this podcast came about four years ago after a meeting we had with someone that you've mentioned in the past, Annie Duke, after he after she released her book, Thinking in Beds, and we thought that a lot of the insights that she was describing in the book from a poker mentality had a lot of applications to the world of investing. And that was a revelation. And just because of that session, we decided to launch a podcast that aim to approach the topic of decision-making under uncertainty and try to understand how people were making decisions under very uncertain environments, and trying to see what we could apply ourselves, not only to the world of investing, but becoming better decision-makers in, in our day-to-day -day life. One thing that is central to the book is to make better decisions, you need to try to think in terms of probabilities, but that in practice is extremely difficult to execute. It sounds very, very nice in theory. How do you think, how do you approach probabilistic thinking yourself? And do you have any suggestions for those that are trying, but maybe not executing it correctly? Well, um, great question. I, I, I love this topic. So first, Annie Duke in that book, Thinking in Bets, that is a really good book. She did the world a great favor by writing that because what she did was to codify and try to articulate the way she thinks about things. So again, one of these uh, examples of the narrative, um, she was giving you a narrative about the quantitative thought process. It's not the process itself. It is a description and a narrative of. So there's there's an example of the narrative being a, a force for good rather than a force for evil. To your question about how you apply that in, in real life, uh, first off, don't hold yourself to a standard of perfection. As she, as she points out in that, in that book over and over again, when you're playing poker, you need to play in such a way that you can play a lot of hands so that the odds and the numbers and the probabilistic decision-making do start to work out over time. In any given hand, you can calculate the odds correctly. You can bet correctly. You can do every procedural step correctly, but you can lose that hand. Now, that, that is the reality of poker. It's the reality of life. So the idea of, I need to get so good at probabilistic thinking that I'm, I'm going to get that exactly right, that, that's a false goal. So don't, don't hold that as the standard. But what you can be, and I would say this was my own path, is you can be curious and always recognizing that no matter how good I am at this right now or how much I understand of it right now, it's probably in my best interest and it would be a wise thing to try to get better. Um, and, and I think about a couple of the steps to, to get better is, is one, and I was I was visiting my, my alma mater of the University of Virginia last <clears> night, <throat> and I was giving a talk there to the in, investment club that I'm involved with up there. And I remember my uh, probability and statistics class. And I remember taking my first whack at it and not doing well at all. I mean, at all. It was a great struggle and I really uh, had a hard time and I ended up withdrawing from the class. Now, it was a, a mandatory class, so I had to take it, but I did take it with a different teacher. And that made all the difference in the world. The light bulbs went off. 
and and the guy who taught it my my second time around taking probability and statistics what he did was he was a he was a sports fan so he related the idea of probability and statistics to sports and gambling on sports and that that made all the sense in the world to me i connected with that uh, very very logical and sort of embraced the topic so first off there is a bit of an academic discipline and some math and some some rigor and some process that if you want to get good at it take probability and statistics <laughs> take it at the college level and make sure you pass and understand it well enough to to at least kind of get that that check mark and then after that it's a, it's a matter of curiosity and if you if you want to sound fancy about it uh you know bayesian probability is one of the terms and what bayesian probability really means in real life in my opinion is that once you once you go through a day and you've learned something that day when you're when you're looking at tomorrow and the odds of this or that tomorrow you, you have more data and and you have more uh, facts and understanding of what the circumstance are so that if you're setting the initial line at the beginning of the day, it should be better than uh, your ability to have set it the day before because you learned something yesterday. So lifelong lear learning, curiosity, understanding the basic, basic, basic stuff and disciplines of probability and statistics, reading things like Annie Duke's books, uh, you know, thinking in bets. Uh, there's there's so many, so many books that are, that are so helpful and I'm sure that it's it's a long list of things I've read on that topic over the years, and probably whether it's once a year, once every six months, whatever, there, there's some new book that has a twist on on that sort of thinking, and I probably read that too, just just to try to pick up a little extra wisdom and, and knowledge along the way. And I, I've been doing that my whole life, so I, I think the cumulative effect of of that starts to show up over time. Do you think that? And Annie Duke became very good at probabilistic thinking because she spent many years as a professional poker player, so it was embedded in her, and she was part of a community of people that were training her to think in terms of probabilities. Do you think that, in your case, you find probabilistic thinking natural to you because of the insurance business and the way that you need to I think approach that's very, the world uh, from yeah, that I think side? that's very, very helpful. It, it's a context and a setting. So, for instance... One of the ways that you see Annie Duke's skills on display is you see her at a poker table playing against a lot of other people who are very good at that um, idea as well, and she differentiates herself with her performance. So you can you can draw a logical conclusion that th this woman really knows what she's doing in this realm. If you transfer to her to a completely foreign realm and made her a an organ transplant surgeon or a, a botanist or something else, uh, she'd probably have quite a learning curve. To, to, to be world-class at, at, at one of those disciplines, but she probably has the horsepower to do it with the appropriate time and course of study and training and, and that sort of thing. So it it manifests itself at the poker table because you, you can visibly see it. These sorts of things manifest themselves for me within the realm of insurance because I've spent my um, entire professional life in, in those sort of probabilistic terms. But it, it, I think there, there's a root even below that that comes from natural curiosity and just a desire to to know and to understand how the machine works that that helps you get better at that sort of thing that's really interesting and i want to dig into learning from outcomes because when we've been talking about annie duke and, and hands at a poker table you, know, you can play 100 hands in an evening and you know if if you play a hand and 60 60 times out of 100 it, you, you would have won 
but you just happen to get in, in, in one of those 40 that didn't didn't win at that point you know you should you should do that you should, you should keep doing that again now clearly in investment and in other walks of life maybe botany or uh, or, or transplants the feedback loop is much slower and it can be much harder not to learn from your out outcomes even though we know via probabilistic thinking that outcomes can be a particularly lousy teacher so how have you over your career really i think actually have you tried to ensure that you learn the right lessons over time mm. well by doing it wrong yeah. over and over again and then the feedback loops do it to actually start to kick in <laughs> one of the terms in that in that book that that annie duke wrote is resulting where she talks about looking at outcomes and drawing conclusions from them, which sometimes are wrong, and and you can draw the wrong conclusions. So, so frankly, it's it's a process that should be both bottom up and top down, and you should engage in in both dimensions and both directions, just to try to make sure you're as robust as you possibly can be, and recognize that if you were exclusively bottom up, you're going to get some things wrong. If you're exclusively top down, you're going to get some things wrong. If you engage in a reasonable discipline, both bottom up and top down, I think you'll still get some things wrong, but probably fewer than you would have had you only thought about things in one direction or the other. And and there's just this tendency that I observe all the time when uh, we, we all have our own biases and we all have our own ways that we like to do it and we think it's going to work and we'd rather it work that way. So it's it's confirmation bias. When when that works, we talk about how great it is. And when the other uh, method doesn't work so well, we point out the flaw. See, I told you that yeah. that doesn't work. And and when the other method does work and yours doesn't, you, you tend to have the same biases at, at play. Like, oh, they were just lucky that time. And my, my process was good, but my outcome was bad. Those may be true statements. But that doesn't excuse you from the responsibility of trying to be intellectually honest and trying to solve the problem both ways. And I think that's a lot of what Charlie Munger talks about when he talks about invert, always invert. When, when your mind confronts a problem, you have a natural way that you start to try to solve that problem. And I think what Charlie Munger is saying is stop, pause. You can do that, but also do the back problem the other way. Do it backwards invert from the way you would normally do it, reframe the question. And, and his point is not that that's where the answer comes from and not that your original approach is going to be wrong, but you've doubled the, the model's power by uh, making it more robust and looking at it from both directions. That's really interesting. We do something quite similar in our investment team where we, you know, we're looking at the cheapest quintile, for example, but we're always saying like, why why might the screen be wrong? We call it red teaming. You know, stolen off the U.S. Army. Right. Come in and perfect, yeah, perfect example. Come in and, and and let's look at this from the completely other side and see why might we be wrong. Um, and and by the way, here's one of the reasons. It's hard to interrupt as to why that's so hard. So sometimes I've used that exact analogy and talked about the red team and army exercises, red team exercises when we're sitting around the table talking about something. And sometimes uh, my colleagues will say, you know. I've heard about the red team enough. Why don't, why don't we call it what it really is, is the jerk team. So <laughs> you can, you can, when, you're, when you're always the guy arguing the yeah. devil's advocate or what about yeah. the other point of view or what, what could be wrong about this, that has a human cost and a, and a toll on relationships that is not zero. So you need to be, again, uh, humanly skillful and uh, 
have a, have a sense of humor and a sense of modesty uh, and and dole out the responsibility of being being the captain of the red team from time to time just so everybody can can feel what it's like to be the person arguing the, the other side of the case but that's hard to do hard to do yeah, there's certainly got to be a lot of behavioral safeguards within a within a team to be able to do that genuinely right. with people at different levels and all, and all those sorts of things Right. I want to switch gears slightly and actually talk about I think something you've, you've set up quite recently, which is an investment fund for for students uh, at a couple of colleges in the U.S. where they and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but where they are uh, looking at some companies in which they choose uh, a number of them, but of which the fund will remain invested for a quarter of a century, so so for 25 years. And it's a, it's an incredible idea. I'd just like to ask you about the inspiration um, for that idea, but also what what do you feel the students will gain from it or, or sort of what problem currently with the students do you think it's, it, it will solve? Well, thank you for uh, for asking about that. There was a, a very nice article in the Wall Street Journal a month or two ago by Jason Zweig who, who wrote about my efforts. It's two schools, the University of Virginia, which is where I went to school, and a school uh, named Delaware State, which is an HBCU, and I happen to serve on the board of uh, Graham Holdings with the president of Delaware State. So I got to know him and developed a personal relationship. So I wanted to try to help out, out there as well. You're exactly correct. The, the mechanics of the fund um, are, are fairly straightforward. So if you're a member of the fund um, and you have to pay dues, you have to put $25 of your own money in the pot uh, to, to be a full-fledged voting member of the fund. And I personally made a, a contribution. Some of my friends and colleagues have made contributions. The Markel Corp. Uh, group is is making a contribution. So we're, we're putting some money behind this. Uh, so each year, there's a vintage year, and the students will join the club, will put some money in the pot. And at the end of the year, where there's been a series of speakers and a series of, of, of talks, uh, at the end of the year, each member of the club gets to pick one stock to buy, and that stock will be held for 25 years. That's the holding period. It won't, can't be traded. You're locking yourself in for a 25-year uh, time horizon. At the end, at, at, at year 25, the total portfolio created by all of these students making the one decision will be sold, and half the money will be uh, rolled into year 26 to keep it going into perpetuity, and half of the money will be used to fund scholarships at that point in time. And the people who decide who gets the scholarship are the people who made the initial investment decisions, students, in, in year one. So at their 25th reunion, uh, they'll be they'll be distributing those funds. And in a perfect world, if the value of those uh, of those investments grow at a faster rate than tuition, in the fullness of time, the magic of compound interest being what it is, someday there'll be enough money in that pot so that if you go to University of Virginia or Delaware State, it'll be free. Your tuition will be covered. That's 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 the vision. Now the technical problem that I was trying to address and there's there's a lot of things that that went into this. And uh, we, again, we had a meeting at UVA last night where I was speaking. I said, you know, in your academic career here, oftentimes, uh, if you're studying investments and you get a job in the investment industry, you're going to be doing a lot of work on um, trying to ascertain how good a company is. So you'll be looking at return on equity and return on capital and uh, capital allocation decisions and competitive forces and competitive advantages and all those sorts of things. And those are good and worthy and healthy disciplines. There'll be another line of reasoning that talks about the price of the security and doing analysis of what the price of this should be 
perhaps versus what it what it is in, in the marketplace. And is there a gap there uh, that could be addressed either by going long and buying the stock or going short and uh, you know shorting the stock, selling it, or there are arbitrage opportunities, things of that nature. And that is a fine and worthy academic discipline as well. And and many of those students will be engaged in things where you're using those first two lines of reasoning uh, all day, every day in your professional career. But I think the things that is that is missing from those two streams is the concept of endurance and longevity. So if this is a good business, why is it a good business? How long is that advantage, that competitive advantage, likely to persist? Will technological changes sweep it away? Uh, are they vulnerable to just new ideas, somebody else being uh, creative, something, somebody doing something different? Or are there things that really create some longevity to the competitive advantages the business would have. And I just think that idea of uh, buying something that you've, you're going to uh, tie yourself to the mast and commit to it for 25 years is going to is going to rule out a lot of shorter term things uh, that may have a, a blisteringly hot moment in the sun, but may not endure or last in the fullness of time. And, and I don't think that's talked about enough as part of the educational process. So this is just one little stream and one little one little attempt to try to create a, another line of thinking uh, when you're when you're going through college and trying to determine models and things that might be useful to help, help you get through life. Um, I'm going to uh, change tax a little bit. And capital allocation has been instrumental throughout your career. And you have mentioned in the past that color dollar cost average is it's been very important in your strategy and so i'm going to play a little bit on the jerk team now and i uh, would like to ask you wouldn't it make more sense to just go passive and buy into the cheapest etf in the market on a monthly basis rather than pick on stocks and just average down it, it might be uh, and there are a lot of people who do that and uh, there are far worse things that you could do uh, than that in, in many cases. Now, that being said, um, it's it's the classic idea in finance. And you know, we've talked about, uh, we started this conversation with the idea of a socio versus a cosio, co-managers. And then we talked about some other things where these binary conditions are established and they're thought to be true with, with no room in the middle. Uh, the, there's there's one fellow who, who used to work uh, around here and he had a great thing uh, that he used to say. He says, people have forgotten that there are numbers between zero and a hundred. Mm -hmm. And um, this would be one of those things where the idea is not that you have to be completely active and select everything by yourself uh, and call that the one end of the spectrum. And the other end is going completely passive and just buying the lowest cost ETF. There, there's role for thought and the, there's role for imagination and, and creativity. Now, that being said, you need to let things have enough time to work themselves out. And when people observe the pace at which I buy and sell, I think some people might accuse me of being passive. <laughs> and on any given day, I, I do look pretty passive. On any given day, it's pretty unlikely that, that I am buying or, or, or selling something. But um, I do come to work every day and I do read and think and talk to people and try to observe and try to understand the way in which the world adapts. Um, and I like to give myself the, the leeway and the flexibility and the freedom to, to make changes when it is appropriate to do so. So it's a matter of judgment and, and balance. Now, I'm not I'm not um, trading. I'm, I'm not a hyper uh, high frequency trader or 
anything like that. But I, I do make a few trades every once in a while. Tom, thank you so much. You've been a, a consummate guest. Before we let you go, we, we ask all of our uh, guests on this podcast two kind of signature questions. I'll start with the first of those, and that is uh, if you could give us a book recommendation. Although before I let you think about that, here you're a, a real film nut, so we'll give you a special dispensation that it could be a film that, that everyone absolutely, absolutely must watch. Uh, as well, if you prefer. <laughs> sure. Well, let's let's go with the the, the movie because, uh, <laughs> in, in fact, um, this is a this is a movie that I insist my children sit on the couch and watch with me before they went off to college, and that's The Godfather. So I think uh, if you if you really want one of the best movies ever made, watch The Godfather and understand all of the the uh, relationships and the power structures and uh, humanity and and uh, lack of humanity. In, involved in that movie um and, that, and that's a, that's a good starting spot uh, i will do that my children are a bit too young for it at the moment i think yours are as well Juan, but uh, <laughs> perhaps we'll get together in 10 years and watch the godfather together <laughs> i'm going to make a, a confession publicly i have never watched the godfather well here's the thing here's the great news about it so for instance um I, I guess I that movie came out probably when i was in my mid to late teens and i remember watching it at that point in time uh, my wife had never seen it, so she was probably in her 40s before uh, she made a statement to me like that, that she had never seen it, which <laughs> unfathomable to me. So, uh, so, so we, we, we got it and, and watched it, and I hadn't seen it in 15 years, and I said, and we both agreed, that movie could have been made yesterday. It's, it's timeless. So uh, the fact that it was made in the 1970s and you haven't seen it yet, the good news is you know, you're going to experience it in a fresh way by, by watching it later today which i'm sure you'll do <laughs> absolutely tom our last question before we let you go is we we like to ask our guests about an example of a bad outcome and where you can identify that outcome as being due because of poor process and not bad luck well, that's an interesting question, and I think it's a good uh, self-examination. And and recently, I was I was doing some of that, and I uh, found out some, something embarrassing about about myself. But I, but I'll share it. So, mistakes of omission, omission, things you should have done but didn't, tend to be way way bigger than mistakes of commission. When you make a mistake of commission, the feedback loop hits you pretty hard. When you make a mistake of omission. Well, you know, you don't really have to tell anybody about that. Um, it, it can just be your own little secret. But in point of fact, the biggest change and the biggest delta in the, in the outcomes comes about because you didn't do something you should have done. So uh, I'll tell my own story. In 1984, and I was brand new um, in the investment business, I came across the Carol Loomis article about Buffett in Fortune magazine, and I thought it made all the sense in the world. The scales fell from my eyes. It was exactly uh, on track and seemed to be a wonderful way of thinking. Uh, but then I went and looked at the stock and, you know, it was several hundred dollars per share. And I thought, wow, no stock is could be worth that. So I didn't buy it. <laughs> didn't buy it in 1984 when I first found out about it. wasn't until 1990, six years later, that I, that I bought my first share and, and, and bought some. Um, and then, sadly enough, it wasn't until 1998 that I, that I started buying more of it, so uh, the, that was a that was a pretty that, that's an epic <laughs> mistake of omission about how long it takes 
took for me personally to to make Berkshire a very large position. Now, fortunately, it's uh, it's one of those situations where, as the old saying is, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. So I can make up for my stake in, stake in some degree by that. But all of the steps that were um, that I that I took, the reading, the curiosity, uh, th those were all reasonable processes. Just couldn't bring myself to pull the trigger on something, and that and that was an epic mistake of omission. And I think if you um, if you really want to be your own personal red team, uh, go back and examine actions you took and that you didn't take over the last year, over the last five years, over the last twenty years, and and write them down so you have it in front of you and look at that list and and use that as a teaching guide to say hmm is, is there a pattern here is there is there something i can observe about these mistakes of omission that i've made over the last 1 5 10 years that gosh in, in retrospect I, I i shouldn't have made this i i knew enough to have acted differently so with that then what are you going to do differently starting starting right now um, that's a that's, great, that would be my recommendation that's a great way to close our session Tom thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective Podcast 